0: Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. My name is Eric Trexler. I am the special temporary primary host of the show today. I am joined by Greg Knuckles. He is currently the permanent guest co-host for now. Um, if you like the show and you want to support it, there are many ways to do it. You can light rate like rate or subscribe wherever you happen to get your podcasts. You could join our email newsletter. Uh, you could do that by going to stronger by slash newsletter. We'll send you a bunch of interesting research updates and our perspective on new research as it comes out. You can work with one of our talented coaches. We do online one-on-one virtual coaching. Uh, You can go to strongerbyscience.com slash coaching to check out our pricing and to look at our roster or our team of extremely talented coaches. You could use our discount code at bulksupplements.com. If you use the code SBSPOD, that will get you a 5% discount off of your entire order at BulkSupplements.com. And finally, you could check out the Mass Research Review. That's a monthly research review that we publish along with Dr. Mike Zordos and Dr. Eric Helms covering all the newest research in exercise and nutrition. Or you could check out our diet app called Macrofactor, which does offer a free trial. Uh, Greg, road to the stage. How is it going?
1: Yeah, it's going well. There's there's nothing particularly exciting to report uh, on that front. My, my meat and fruit diet is still going strong, but since I don't have much to say about Road to the Stage, uh, I do have some corrections from the last episode, which uh, someone in the subreddit suggested this as a, uh, as a section title for when we have corrections. Uh, so instead of Stronger by Science, Corrections are now Wronger by Science. Uh, which I was last episode on two fronts. One is uh, I, I misstated that the phrenic nerve was an offshoot of the vagus nerve. It is not. Uh, it, it does interact with the vagus nerve and can affect vagal tone, uh, but it's not actually a branch of it. Just misspoke there. Uh, and then far more importantly, um, something Eric said, I noted that it sounded like a setup to a Bill Hicks joke. It was not. It was a setup to a Mitch Hedberg joke. Uh, and I greatly apologize for uh, for that confusion.
0: That's bad because Mitch Hedberg he is a legend. Uh, well, he, so is Bill Hicks. I, I actually haven't heard any Bill Hicks stuff. I'll have to look it you up. You should you should check it out. Uh, but yeah, Mitch Hedberg has a great joke about uh, being asked if he wants a receipt when he purchases a donut. Mm-hmm. Uh, and man, it, it's one of the best. Mitch Hedberg had that way of just like making these little observations that were useless not particularly uh insightful in any way but he would just elaborate on it and it would be so funny he
1: he was one of the few people who could put together a full special of one-liners without yeah. it seeming like super disconnected
0: yeah yeah, yeah. He, he was a really really talented comedian um all right road to athens uh i don't have much to report uh but i've been all about paddleboarding these days uh, just absolutely loving it getting out on the lake as much as i possibly can uh, and yeah, it's great. It's, it's actually made it kind of challenging to do any other form of physical activity. Cause it's like, I enjoy it so much, uh, that I just want to be out on the lake all the time, but realistically it's probably not going to keep my pecs where they need to be. <laughs> you know, like I have to kind of talk myself into like, Hey, you should do some other types of exercise. Um, but yeah, it's been great. Really enjoying it. Uh, it's a nice way to get a little bit of exercise and, uh, yeah, just enjoy nature and kind of float around out there good deal uh feats of strength what do we got this week
1: yeah so so last week i talked about some some feats of strength on the women's side of the recent ipf world championships um this time talking about the men's side of things and also some big performances at uh, usapl mega nationals which took place on the same weekend uh so yeah let's let's get right into it so starting with the squat uh, Jonathan Garcia uh, set a new record in the 66 kilo or 145 pound weight class uh he squatted 271 kilos or damn near 600 pounds 597 which uh is wild to me like that just that people in that weight class are now closing in on 600 uh a decade ago that was not the case uh Russell Ori in the eighty-two and a half uh, kilo weight class or one eighty-one pound class uh, at USAPL Mega Nationals, squatted uh, three twenty and a half or seven hundred and six pounds. That is a new record. Uh, Jamar Royster, uh, macro factor athlete, also all-around cool guy. Follow him on Instagram at Pancake God. Uh, He squatted 332 and a half kilos or 733 pounds at just south of 200 pounds in the 90 kilo weight class. And I believe that's the second biggest squat in that weight class ever uh, behind only Jesse Norris. And uh, if you are coming in second to Jesse Norris, that is not a bad place to be because my God, that guy was fucking
0: strong. When, When he was really humming, and oh, just yeah. winning all the meets. like the numbers he was putting up were, were just stupid. Still are. I yeah. Mean, yeah. They, the, yeah. The,
1: the the numbers he was hitting in twenty fourteen, like he he was at least half a decade, if not more, ahead of the rest of the sport. Yeah. Uh let's see. Moving on to bench. Uh the biggest bench of the day at IPF Worlds was also the most impressive in my book. I'm gonna butcher this name. I apologize in advance, but Ilias Buchalem... From Algeria, I believe, benched 291.5 kilos or 642 pounds at super heavyweight. I think he's held that record for a while, but he he improved upon it. Uh, And then on deadlift, uh, Asian Inahoro pulled 362.5 kilos or 799 pounds in the uh, 83 kilo class. That's 183 pounds at IPF Worlds. And I think he's still a junior as well. So already a, a great lifter and uh, fully expect to see just some crazy numbers out of him in the future. Not that pulling 800 at 183 isn't already pretty crazy. Uh, and then uh, for for the totals, uh, Eddie Berglund uh, set a record. A lot of people think of him as primarily a bench specialist, which like he kind of is. He has a ridiculous bench press, but also just a great all around lifter uh, he totaled 710, which is uh, 1,565 pounds in the 145 pound or 66 kilo weight class. Uh, and uh, Russell Ori, he didn't quite beat his best total ever, but uh, he did set a new record in the USAPL since the weight classes uh, changed a little bit. Uh, he totaled 838 kilos or 1,847 pounds. I think he's done 843 before. Uh, but like I said, the, the weight classes uh, changed from 83 to 82 and a half. So that's a new record for him. And then two final shout outs. Uh, one is Bryce Lewis, also a very cool guy. I assume most people who listen to this podcast know who Bryce Lewis is. Uh, if you don't, check him out. Bryce is awesome. Uh, he recently made the drop from the 105 kilo class to the 90 kilo class. So that's 231 down to 198. And he used to compete uh, around that weight. He used to compete back in the old 93 kilo class, uh, I think seven years ago. And so he spent a, a pretty good chunk of time at 105. And now back down at sub 90, he's he's totaling uh, like around 100 kilos more than he used to at a similar body weight. Uh, so at, at Mega Nationals, he totaled 845. Uh, and... Previously, he was totaling like 740, 750 uh, at a slightly heavier body weight uh, back in the 93 kilo class. So props to him. This is only his second meet at 90 kilos, and uh, he is uh, continuing to make progress there. This was this was a meet PR over his prior meet at 90. Uh, and David Wilson, he totaled a huge 900 kilos at 110. So that's close to 2,000 pounds at 242. And he was inches away from taking his weight class. I believe Ashton Ruska ended up winning it, but David was was inches away. So he pulled uh 375 for his second deadlift, and uh, he needed to pull 400 and a half to win. So th- so 375 I think was a two kilo meet PR uh and then he needed to he was he was 25 pounds, or 25 kilos behind first going into his third attempt deadlift so he just made the jump all the way to 400 and a half which would have uh won the meet by half a kilo would have been like a 27 and a half kilo meet pr which is just wild and he was he was a hair's breadth away from locking it out uh so so props to him for a huge total in general and for uh, a very gutsy attempt on that final pull. And I have I have no doubt he's going to pull uh, 400 kilos plus in the near future. Um, so yeah, uh, David, Bryce, also very cool. Check them out. And uh, yeah, last couple of weeks, a lot of strong people doing a lot of strong stuff.
0: And Bryce is coached by Eric Helms, right?
1: Unfortunately.
0: I was going to say, it's always cool when you can see an athlete who excels at that level in spite of... You know, just really bad coaching.
1: Yeah, all, all I mean that. You also have to hold Bryce somewhat accountable for that because he can choose his coach.
0: Um, it could be like a blackmail situation now that I think about it. <laughs> you never know. You just never kidding. Know. We we love Helms around here. Um, all right, so for the next segment, I don't really have a, a, a title for the segment. It's just kind of an update on something we've talked about on the show before. Um, I'm going to leave some links in the show notes for various resources for people who want to look deeper into this. Um, There's going to be a small group of people for whom this segment is of absolute top importance and really a high level of interest. And then for other people, it's just kind of a passive interest in how the supplement world works and a passive interest in general gossip in the fitness industry so there is some drama unfolding in the world of phytoecdysteroids. Um and we've talked about them on the show. These uh these are compounds that plants make uh basically as defense mechanisms and insects eat them and inside the insects these phytoecdysteroids basically function as hormones and one of the things that they do is they cause the insects to uh, spontaneously molt and die, mm-hmm. um, which I assume makes these Paul Saladino's worst nightmare, right? Like he's all about the plant defense chemicals. Yeah, one one would assume. Um, so anyway, that's what phytoectesteroids are. And the reason that they have become popular lately in the fitness world is um, it seems like they're on this like 25-year cycle where... You know, phytoectosteroids get big, and then they kind of die down. They get big, they die down. Uh, a while ago, people were really into uh, beta-ectosterone, which was a phytoectosteroid. People started selling it in supplements. Um, there wasn't a ton of human research on it. the The human research that was available at the time was pretty underwhelming, not particularly special. And it just kind of fell out of favor. People lost interest in it. Uh, within the last several years, terchesterone has become the next uh, phytosteroid that has kind of benefited from that kind of increase in hype and interest. That's largely been driven by mechanistic data and you know some rodent data where they've looked at different phytosteroids and how they uh, how they work in vitro or in rodent models, and they've said, "Wow, based on the various phytosteroids available." it looks like this turkesterone seems to be particularly anabolic, not in a class of its own, but just kind of, if you're going to take one, it looks like that one's interesting. Uh, but again, when we reviewed it on the show or talked about it on the show, you know, basically there wasn't a lot to discuss. Uh, you know, there, there just isn't relevant human data looking at turkesterone supplementation and how it impacts uh, adaptations to resistance training or anything else uh, i'm not familiar i'm not aware of any human trial involving turkesterone. correct yeah
1: uh yeah it's it's not a case where the human data is underwhelming the human data simply doesn't exist
0: right um and so turkesterone is not too terribly different in terms of its theoretical functions its structure Uh, it's not too terribly different from beta-ectosterone. And so we talked a little bit about the evidence related to beta-ectosterone. It was hyped up a while ago. It fizzled out. There was a a study within the last few years about, uh, you know, I think it was beta-ectosterone in a paper where there were some really noteworthy uh, observations related to strength and hypertrophy uh, but it was, it was an odd kind of situation because they did uh, testing of the ingredient, which is a, a really impressive step to take for supplement research. Uh, and they looked into it, and within that beta-ectosterone paper, um, you know, the, the publication suggests that the, uh, the supplement was pretty aggressively underdosed. Uh, they detected about 6% of the labeled content of beta-ectosterone Uh, and there was really no other active ingredient, uh, implicated. It was, there was like a little dusting of leucine, not enough to matter, uh, from a physiological perspective. And so looking at that paper and and also I'll note, I'm pretty, I'm
1: like 98% sure we talked about that on that paper, like in, in quite a bit of depth on the podcast before, I think, I think in one of our first 10 or 20 episodes, Yeah. uh, the, the title, if you want to check it out, is Ectysteroids as a Non-Conventional Anabolic Agent, uh, Colon Performance Enhancement by Ectysterone Supplements in Humans by Eisenman and Colleagues, if you want to check that out.
0: Yeah, and Eisenman, he's been doing a lot of really fascinating supplement work lately. Um, he's done some stuff with, obviously, beta ectosterone. He's done stuff with uh, CBD. Uh, I really like the line of uh, of research that, that he's working on. Um, I think he's maybe based out of Germany. Is that correct? I believe so, yeah. yeah. But anyway, so we kind of went through that paper and we said, okay, so beta-ectosterone, historically, the the literature hasn't been that promising. Uh, this paper, it looked quite promising. Uh, and the researchers were candid about it. They were like yeah we got about six percent of what we thought in this product based on our testing Mm -hmm. and so what happened you know it could be sampling error leading to false positives it could be a placebo effect it could be issues with the assay for determination of the uh supplement ingredient uh for some reason maybe beta-ectosterone worked in in this particular context with a super low dose um there was really no way to tell exactly what was going on Um, but you know, it it was really hard to say, yeah, based on the totality of the beta ectesterone literature, this is a safe bet. You know, it it was just kind of like, it was underwhelming then. I'm not sure if one paper is enough to really shift that tide, especially when it's a paper that is, you know, apparently quite underdosed that actual ingredient.
1: Yeah. And, and, uh, so I, I found it in our, in our backlog. Uh, if, if you want to listen to our in-depth discussion of that particular paper. It is episode eight of the Stronger by Science podcast, and the discussion of it starts about 57 minutes into the episode. Yeah.
0: Man, episode eight? Episode eight. Wow. Yeah. Um, yeah, so anyway, we basically approached the Uh The last time we talked about terchesterone, we basically said, well— um, I, I guess we'll talk about beta-ectosterone because that, that's the closest thing we've got in the literature. And we will note that there seems to be some odd stuff with regards to even just the standardizing of doses of, of beta-ectosterone. So we really don't know to what extent those findings generalize to the broader phytoectosteroid literature and specifically how they might relate to turkesterone products. So the new drama in this particular area is actually really kind of coincidental because uh i'll link uh this really long explanation of what went down but somebody um did independent testing uh, someone with really extensive expertise in in this type of work of uh you know analytical chemistry and testing ingredient uh for for meeting label claims they did some independent testing of a lot of turkesterone products on the market and they generally just did not have much turkesterone at all uh, like for some of them, it was like one six hundredth of the dose that was labeled. Um, yeah. I mean, literal dustings uh, of terkesterone if it's detected to a, a meaningful degree. Mm-hmm. Um, but oddly enough, some of them did seem to have some beta Uh not necessarily a ton in general. Uh, but what what I thought was ironic about it was we were back in the day, we we're like, well, we don't have any terkesterone data, so let's look at the beta ectosterone literature it seems like maybe we were a little bit closer than we thought at the time, because <laughs> these products, based on this analysis, seem to be more beta-ectesterone products and, and really have just physiologically irrelevant uh, content of Um, So there's obviously drama unfolding because these turkesterone products have been hyped up big time. People are selling them. People who have been purchasing them are wondering what is going on here. Um, there are a couple important caveats related to this kind of discussion as it unfolds. First of all, I'm not a chemist, and I'm not particularly close to being a chemist. So I personally make no specific claims about the methods involved for ingredient verification. I simply don't have the expertise to, to jump in there and say, "Oh uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to lean on my analytical chemistry background to really correct some people. That's not me, so I'm going to sit on the sidelines for this one and kind of watch it unfold. Uh, The individuals and the companies that sell these terkestrone products that have been tested, uh, I do believe they should have an opportunity to state their case and potentially provide contradictory evidence and then people with expertise related to this can weigh in and say, "Okay, well, there's this evidence saying that the products don't have meaningful amounts of terchesterone. Perhaps there's contrary evidence to be assessed that that says no, actually these meet label claims." And then people with actual expertise in the you know really nitty gritty biochemistry at that point have to weigh in and say which looks to be the more compelling evidence here, or or what what does what does uh, explains the discrepancy here. So. Uh, I definitely think that, uh, you know, obviously with any kind of thing like this, you got to at least let the individuals and companies involved state their case and and say, oh, I know what what happened here. Here's what's going on. Mm -hmm. The third important caveat to keep in mind is if a company is selling a bogus finished product that is just way off from label claims, uh, a lot of times it's a natural knee-jerk reaction to say, "Oh, they're fraudsters, they're scammers. They knowingly have been doing this uh, at the expense of their consumers." There is potentially an alternative explanation. Again, if we assume that these products really fail this badly with regards to ingredient testing and label claims, um, you know these these companies are not sitting there synthesizing and and you know uh, extracting their own raw materials in most cases in in the vast majority of cases those materials are coming from bulk suppliers Mm -hmm. uh and it it is very possible that well-intentioned companies who are trying to put together uh, high quality products are being deceived from ingredient suppliers and they are buying what they believe to be high quality terchesterone. it's coming in and it simply isn't Uh, so it's very possible that some of these companies and individuals might be as surprised as as the typical consumer, yeah, uh, and, and that's those caveats are just being charitable, giving the benefit of the doubt,
1: well, yeah, I, I mean, i I think in this case, that's pretty likely like there there are some instances where uh, the the circumstantial evidence for malfeasance is relatively strong. So, like, for example, when there was the the scandal about amino spiking a few years ago where people were buying, whey protein supplements that they thought had like 30 grams of actual protein per serving, but it was like 18 grams of protein and then 12 grams of like cheap individual amino acids like you know like little lysine
0: sprinkled in or whatever non-prote proteogenic so yeah yeah amino acids that were not having the same impact on muscle building correct
1: yeah yeah yeah. so like in a situation like that i mean like whey protein is is a, a byproduct of dairy manufacturing and when the the dairy producers uh ship a a big shipment of whey protein to whoever wants to amino spike their protein powder like it's it's not going to come like that it's just going to come as whey protein it would be uh like weird and inefficient for the milk suppliers to give like bad whey protein to people so that was probably a situation where people were spiking their whey protein with amino's after the fact to cut some costs but yeah for for a situation like this i mean um you know when you're dealing with a with an herbal extract um when people find that like, oh, there's like virtually none of the active ingredient in the product, uh, you, you don't want that to happen. Um, you know, you wind up with a lot of egg on your face and you know, it's, it's not a situation where like they're getting those, those herbal extracts from some other company. And then it's like, Ooh, let's cut it 90% with some other thing. It, it, it was probably just a case where they got the herbal extracts from another company and what the other company sent them was just bad. Like I I think that that's probably more likely in this case. Uh but yeah, I mean, we'll hopefully know uh at some point down the line.
0: Yeah, and you know, it yeah, when you have to when you're kind of weighing those potential possibilities of like, well, what was it, you know, a, a supplier who is yeah. sending low quality bulk material, uh was it the formulator company that actually puts together the finished product that was, you know, uh, making mistakes or, or worse. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it, it is one of those things you, you have to be, uh, on the outset here, you have to be charitable with your assumptions. You have to be open to all possibilities. It's not a great look for a company. You know, if these products, if there's no explanation that results in them saying, actually, these have been meeting label claims and there was some kind of error going on, uh, you know, it's it's never a good look if you've been selling products that aren't meeting label claims because even if there's no intentionality behind it it's you know as we all know uh, stronger by science we wrote an article about dietary supplement regulation and for better or for worse the burden of you know making sure that you're consuming high quality products that are safe and effective and meet label claims a lot of that is shifted to the consumer a lot of consumers like to to specifically seek out supplement companies where they say, I have faith that there are really robust uh, quality control standards involved here so that I don't have to do all the homework, right? Like I want to buy supplements from a company that is just rock solid and has really high levels of quality control. They're testing their batches of raw materials for potency or content as they come in and things of that nature and using the correct testing methods to check for that. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean there's there's a lot of ins and outs here and like i'll link the the initial post Uh for the person who did these independent, uh tests and as you'll see like It's not straightforward. I mean there's a tremendous amount of detail and nuance and information Just in relaying the results of the initial testing. Yeah, Uh, so this is complicated stuff well, and
1: I mean another thing to note here is like All of the turkestrone products seem to be tragically underdosed which doesn't doesn't feel to me like a handful of people trying to take advantage of consumers it feels to me like a global turkesterone market where there are zero good suppliers yeah, like yeah. just just like the the entire like global supply of like turkesterone that that might be then sold to supplement manufacturers it seems like all of it's bad yeah. which you know it, is maybe in In part uh an issue that the actual supplement sellers should be concerned about like hey if you can't get your your hands on high quality product maybe just don't sell it Uh, but it doesn't seem like a situation where some people are doing things the right way and some people are cutting corners it just seems like no one can get their hands on the real stuff in the first place
0: this tragically reminds me of uh when i was in my mid-20s and found out that i had never had real maple syrup Oh, yeah, um, that was I, I had never felt so deceived in my life <laughs> growing up. I would I would eat pancakes or waffles. I would have a brown viscous liquid that was sweet. Yeah. And to my knowledge, that was maple syrup. It turns out it literally never was. It was just like liquid corn syrup with some artificial flavoring. And yeah, then I had the real stuff and I, I felt like I had been cheated for two and a half decades. Uh, but yeah, so. In summary, uh, the beta-ectosterone, the turkesterone stuff, it's interesting. It's fascinating. It touches on uh, a little bit of how the supplement industry works and kind of self-polices and self-regulates. Um, and yeah, I, I would encourage people you know, to uh, keep some of those caveats in mind. Like I said, we're going to have to wait and see how the situation unfolds and, and get a better understanding of what's really going on here. Um, You know, I'm not I'm certainly not going to vilify any individual or company until we get more information and figure out what what the deal is. Um, Cool. So moving on, we just published an article at Stronger by Science on the show. When we publish a new article, we often have a little discussion about it. So, Greg, why don't you tell us? about the new article
1: yeah sure so the the title of this article is the most commonly neglected movements and muscles parentheses and exercises to address weak links close parentheses this is a guest article by cameron gill who has written uh two or three other really good guest articles for stronger by science before uh big fan of his content and um yeah so so this one Uh, I, I found very interesting. I think this is my personal favorite of his articles he's written for the site so far. Um, and so, you know, it's basically like a survey of what muscles are trained quite well, like what muscles or muscle groups are trained quite well by the big exercises people commonly do in the gym. So pressing exercises, upper body pulling exercises, uh you know hip hinge style lower body exercises squat style lower body exercises and then what muscles are neglected by by those movements uh which you know might benefit from a little love and so uh he identified uh three kind of broad categories of muscles that tend to be pretty neglected by those big exercises that most people focus on Uh, And that would be scapular protract, uh, muscles that that participate in scapular protraction. So, you know, most things were retracting our scapula. So uh, scapular protractors, primarily the the pec minor and the serratus anterior uh, might be getting neglected. The hip flexor group as a whole might be getting neglected. So unless you're doing a bunch of leg raises, maybe, you know, maybe you're doing leg raises for the purpose of ab training, but you're also... Uh, primarily training your hip your hip flexors if you're not doing any of that your your hip flexors probably aren't getting enough love and also your hip ad, uh, abductor group and So I, I found this article really interesting because one of the things Cameron did is is basically try to quantify um, <laughs> how How much muscle mass are we neglecting by not training these muscles and so you know coming right out of the gate your scapular protractors, uh, on the whole, take up more total muscle volume than your lats do, and that's primarily from your serratus anterior, which I was surprised to learn is a very large muscle group. I did not know your serratus anterior was that large, but like in untrained folks, their serratus anterior is like ninety percent the total muscle volume of their lats. And you know, where we we tend to not train the serratus that hard. Um, similar with the, uh, the hip flexors, uh, overall, the, the total volume of the hip flexors group is about 12% greater than that of the gluteus maximus, which I think is the largest muscle in the body. Um, so, you know, if you're not training your hip flexors, that is a lot of muscle mass that's, that's being neglected. Um, so yeah, it, it, makes the case for why you should probably want to train those muscles how how much of your total muscle mass you're neglecting if you aren't and then uh you know a, a bunch of exercises that you can use to target those muscles um so yeah it's it's a really good article you should check it out uh one question that's already come up uh after sharing this is uh so, someone basically asked like you know if i'm if i care mostly about my physique like why should i care about this like what what visual difference will it make if I'm training my scapular protractors? If I'm training my hip flexors, etc. Uh, and, and I think that in I, I think that for the most part you're dealing with with deep muscles. Uh, so I think it's helpful to think of it the same way you might think of like brachialis training. So you know you don't really see your brachialis. If it gets bigger, you're not going to look at someone and be like, dude, you have sick brachialis development. But since it lies deep to the bicep when your brachialis gets thicker, it pushes your bicep further from your humerus. and so you know the the top of your bicep peak is then further from uh, the rest of your arm. and so your your whole arm just looks bigger and more developed. And I think that's the case for for most of these muscles, like um you know, if if your hip flexors get bigger, most of them are on the anterior portion of your thigh. they tend to, they they're they're either deep to or in the same general area as your quads so you know better developed hip flexors will probably just you know someone who doesn't know anatomy super well if you have really developed hip hip flexors they'll probably be like dude you have huge quads uh or like your pec minor it lies deep to your pecs kind of on the upper and outer part uh, of your chest so you know it'll just look like slightly better upper chest development uh, if you, if you develop your pec minor. So I, I think those are, are the sorts of visual differences you can anticipate. Um, but yeah, there's, there's a, a lot of muscle in your body that you probably aren't training uh, quite as
0: hard as the rest of your muscle.
1: So, uh, you know, might, might make sense to, uh, to, to show those muscle groups a bit of love.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I don't know if you remember this, but the the first time I looked at this article when it was ready for for some of the editing and revising uh, part of the process, uh, my first response that that I sent you was like, man, I wish this article existed a very long time ago. And was kind of, I I wish I was forced to read it Mm because You know, I I do suspect a lot of the um, neglected musculature surrounding the hip, part of me does suspect that, you know, I mean, my road to Athens segment right now has nothing to do with running, right? Because I have this persistent hip issue that I'm training around and trying to recover from and trying to rehabilitate. I really think that giving a little more attention to some of these neglected movements and neglected muscles really would have facilitated my longevity as a lifter. And that's not to, you know, get into the whole, I don't even want to get into the whole thing about training and injury because people get all upset about it. But yeah, I, I would, based on my personal experience, uh, I really think I would be better off from having focused on some of these exercises earlier on.
1: Yeah. I mean, we, uh, so th- this article makes, uh, no claims about injury injury Correct. risk where we're for for written content, especially, we we try to be very careful about stating things that evidence supports and not venturing too far into speculative territory. But yeah, I mean, this is the podcast now. Yeah. This is the Wild West, baby. And I I very much suspect the same thing, dude. My I I have at points in my life had uh like world class strong hip extensors and just like fucking doo doo weak hip flexors and uh yeah my my hips uh don't feel great my back doesn't feel great you can never ke- you can never test the counterfactual i can't hop in a time machine and see how my hips would feel if i had been consistently training my hip flexors but um i think that my hips
0: would feel better if i had been yeah. <laughs> um, well so- like for me i i not long ago i was in a physical therapist office and they did testing uh, they're Tested my strength of my hips in various different uh, you know ranges of motion and planes of motion, and they said, Hey, uh, why don't you have hip flexors? Yeah <laughs> like yeah, I mean my extension uh, was fine, but my hip flexors were crap. my adduction was fine, but my abductors were crap. Um, but yeah, so I, I, I'm not making any specific claims about injury risk or injury prevention, but as someone who is very annoyed with his hip, I look at some of these exercises and I'm like, Wow, That's what physical therapists tell me I ought to be doing. Uh, Doesn't seem like a coincidence to me.
1: Yeah. So uh, uh, shout out to Jason for looking over this article uh, before we published it to make sure there weren't any unjustifiable claims in it. Uh, Jason does not look over the podcast before we publish it. (laughs) So uh, anything we just said in this segment doesn't reflect poorly on him.
0: Yeah, the, the, the very tail end of that segment was basically like historical fiction, right? We, we took the basic elements of the article and then just said, well, let's put a little spin on it. So yeah, the, the article has the good stuff and then the podcast has just random shit that we believe based just on- nothing. wild speculation. Exactly. Yeah. Um, all right, so moving on. I've got a little Coach's Corner segment about a nutrition question that I got recently uh, and- there are going to be elements here where I kind of might... uh, I'm not like intentionally (laughs) strawmanning the question or the argument that I'm responding to, but I have gotten the question from so many different people in so many different forms. I'm kind of responding to this kind of synthesis of all these different people with related questions, right? So the individual that asked me this question had a really firm grasp on the basics, but I'm responding to the, uh, you know, it's, it's like when, uh, sometimes in, uh, like a, like a historical fiction uh, that they will like combine four real people into like a single character just to kind of make it make the story flow a little better. Yeah. Yeah. I'm basically doing that with this. So it's like a Q and a segment, but I'm answering like six different questions from six different people. But the question is about macros while bulking and specifically with carbohydrate overfeeding. Uh, Now we have covered protein overfeeding previously on the podcast and we've addressed the, um, there's a bit of an argument going related to protein overfeeding about uh, how likely or even possible it is for one to gain fat with high protein overfeeding. And uh, in that segment, we kind of went through it and said, well, thermodynamics still work. Uh, we can go and calculate exactly where the energy is going. There are no free calories in this situation. Yeah. Uh, but there are major impacts on uh, the thermic effect of feeding, major impacts on satiety. And the more controlled you get with those protein overfeeding studies, the less ambiguity is. you. you the, the more tightly controlled those studies are, the more you can identify exactly where the consumed calories went. Um, now, with carbohydrate overfeeding, um, there are two kind of common claims that get tossed around. One is the fact that directly converting excess carbohydrate to fat, uh, so that, that's called de novo lipogenesis, taking extra carbohydrate, converting it directly to fat for storage. Uh, a common claim you hear is that that is very inefficient. And that it rarely occurs, or almost never occurs. And so people hear those two things uh, without any context or nuance connected to them, and they start to get this idea like, okay, well, if I'm not going to, you know, turn this into fat and store it, perhaps there's a little bit of a cheat code when it comes to bulking, which is just, I mean, as long as you're going over with carbs, whatever. you're not going to store it as fat you'll burn it all off, no big deal. So, you know, eat the carbs to your heart's content. Um, And what's really important is that the term inefficient, I think, needs to be operationally defined to provide a better understanding of what that means. And even the the term rarely occurs, I think it's very important and helpful to contextualize that with a little bit of nuance. Um, So, I've seen the studies that a lot of people use when they say, hey, de novo lipogenesis is super rare, so rare that it's basically not even worth considering in any context. And when you look at those studies, you will find that they are doing very aggressive, very high carb overfeeding, but they are not doing radical fat restriction. And so usually what happens there is, there it, it's certainly a high intake of carbohydrate but there's still plenty of fat being consumed there so de novo lipogenesis rarely occurs in that context because that's not the path of least resistance your, your body is not going to see all the this influx of carbohydrate and fat it is not going to oxidize that fat and then take the carbohydrate and convert it to fat for store for storage that that simply doesn't make sense energetically um and What you find is your body, when there's this huge influx of extra calories and it's carbohydrate and fat, what your body likes to do is it'll allocate some of that carbohydrate to glycogen, you know, for sure. Uh, A lot of that fat is going to go straight to storage. And instead of burning fat at rest, which is kind of our typical default state in a fasted situation, your body's going to say, well, there's all this carbohydrate. Uh, Storing it as fat is going to be a pain in the ass. Let's just oxidize that instead of the fat. So like I said, normal fasting situation, you're burning mostly fat at rest. When you have this huge influx of carbohydrate, your body just says, well, I'll burn the carbohydrate for energy now. Uh, some of the carbohydrates going to go to glycogen, the fat, I'm going to store that. Uh, and that's pretty much what happens. And, and if the overfeeding is large enough uh, and the excess energy intake is high enough and it's super high carbohydrate, one of the things that you'll notice is that, uh, Carbohydrate tends to have a higher thermic effect of feeding than fat. And so when you're trying to figure out with this huge influx of carbohydrate, if it's not getting converted to fat and stored, where is it going? Uh, you can start to piece together exactly where it's going. Uh, you can you can see that it's being used mostly to—it's just being oxidized to meet energy needs at that time. Mm-hmm. Some of it's going to glycogen. And, uh, you know, because there is a, a pretty substantial—it's therm- not as high as protein— but carbohydrate does have a noteworthy thermic effect. There are some extra calories that are just getting burned due to the thermic effect of feeding. Um, and so once there are some studies looking at a very different scenario, which is basically what happens with super high carb overfeeding with very extreme fat restriction. Uh, and when you look at that research, uh, things look a little bit different. Of course, there's still the, the high thermic effect, uh, uh, or moderate, I would say thermic effect of carbohydrate ingestion. Mm-hmm. Um, th- there's no fat coming in within these extreme experimental scenarios. So there, it's not going to be, uh, you know, kind of storing the fat oxidizing the carbs. What's going to happen is with this really high carb, extremely, extremely, extremely low fat overfeeding, of course. You know, the body's going to have that thermic effect of the meal. The body is going to oxidize carbohydrate to meet immediate energy needs. Much of that carbohydrate is going to go to saturate glycogen stores and, in some cases, even super compensate and, and kind of really, really pack in as much glycogen as possible. But after that, there will be some de novo lipogenesis that occurs mm-hmm. that, that absolutely has been observed in the research. And so the question about, you know, is it possible? What are the situations where it might be observed? It really comes down to how extreme is the overfeeding and how extreme is the degree of fat restriction. Mm -hmm. So we have everything we need in our body to do de novo lipogenesis with carbohydrate. It's rarely the path of least resistance. It's rarely the path that makes sense because there's usually fat coming into the diet and we're just like, whatever, store the fat, burn the carbs. Um, But I think because people often talk about this concept without some of the nuance and some of the details of the studies, some people have kind of gotten the impression, you know, well, just go crazy with the carbs. Worst case scenario, you burn it all off, Uh, but you certainly won't store it as fat. That's not necessarily strictly the case, but practically speaking, uh, you know, you, you think of I'm just trying to put this into real world terms here. Let's say you're doing a diet uh, overfeeding, you're bulking hard. It's a thousand carbs a day, 40 grams of fat a day, 180 protein. That is a pretty extreme macro breakdown. I mean, that is only a 7% fat diet, which I personally wouldn't recommend. But, uh, you know, it's going to be hard to get a thousand grams of carbs and 180 grams of protein without at least 40 grams of fat finding their way in there. You'd have to go really far out of your way to make that work. Um, So even in that context, you're still getting that 40 grams of fat coming in that could be stored. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so if you're storing 40 grams of fat a day uh, and you're doing that as your kind of daily diet, even with that alone, without any need for uh, de novo lipogenesis, you're talking about over 32 pounds of fat stored per year. Mm -hmm. So What happens is we we kind of look at these isolated findings that are in different situations with different degrees of overfeeding, different degrees of fat restriction. We start making conclusions about whether or not de novo lipogenesis is likely to occur, whether or not it's observed commonly. And then that kind of snowballs into this kind of series of working conclusions about what happens with high-carb overfeeding. Uh, So I just wanted to kind of... uh, explain in a little more detail what the situation is with high carb overfeeding, because it's definitely not a cheat code. There's no free calories happening here with, with high carb overfeeding. But what you will find is, like I said, there's a major shift in substrate oxidation. That's for sure. Uh, in most diets, even with some pretty, ex, ex, pretty low fat diets, like I said, the example I gave was 7% fat you might not even need to do much de novo lipogenesis at all there because there is fat that's going to be stored there. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I wanted to clarify where some of these carbs are going. And if you need to, you absolutely can do de novo lipogenesis and convert carbohydrate to fat. That is a a relatively costly way to store carbohydrate. So you will use ATP in the process. And, And so you will see that the energy waste that occurs there is elevated and so what that means is when you look at studies that compare head to head high carb overfeeding versus high fat overfeeding Mm -hmm. if the calorie content of the two overfeeding diets is equivalent you will store more fat on the high fat overfeeding Uh, and the reason is generally speaking you're going to see a lower thermic effect of feeding and metabolic pathways for fat storage that are less costly in that scenario. So uh, people will look at these two at at interventions and say, wow, the, the high carb overfeeding led to less fat gain than the high fat overfeeding, even though calories controlled. What's going on with the missing carbs or the missing calories from carbs? It's just slightly more costly or slightly less efficient metabolic pathways that is leading to some wastage uh, just some some burning of energy that is then because it's being burnt not available for storage
1: yeah yeah so like to to put things in perspective like you know if you wanted to go the the low fat really high carb route since it is slightly more inefficient to to convert carbohydrate to fat than to store you know maybe you could get away with eating an extra hundred calories per day or something for a similar amount of total fat storage because there is that that bit of inefficiency that drag from having to convert stuff but you know it at least in theory it shouldn't make like a night and day difference
0: and yeah and the thing that i find a little bit ironic about this is it is most pertinent to the most extreme overfeeding scenarios mm-hmm. so like if you're really overfeeding and you're in a huge surplus by the time you get down to uh, energy deficits or energy maintenance, this effect pretty much vanishes. Uh, low carb versus low fat diets—there doesn't seem to be a noteworthy difference in terms of fat loss efficacy. Uh, and it's because a lot of this, a lot of the energy wastage that's going on here is related to costly storage uh, yeah. processes. Uh, when when you look at low carb versus low fat for fat loss, it really doesn't matter that much the 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 difference here starts to become more exaggerated when you have very skewed macro profiles and you have very large energy surpluses uh and what's really funny about that is the alleged upside here of high carb low fat dieting actually becomes a little bit more of a curse than a gift Mm -hmm. because if you ever talk to somebody who's eating this way and they're going like oh man i'm eating five thousand calories a day Uh, nothing that I've been trying is helping me gain weight. The last thing that they want to be doing is saying, oh, great, uh, energetically inefficient pathways. So I have to eat more food to get to the same surplus. Yeah. Usually like this thing that kind of seems like a bit of a hack actually within many bulking scenarios is a bit of a, a slight disadvantage or something that is to be overcome just because you're like. Yeah, I'm very, very full. I, I wish I didn't have to eat those extra, you know, 100 calories or whatever it is. Um, but the the place where this does become uh, slightly helpful is because there's, you know, we, we can allocate some of this to glycogen, top off those stores. Uh, if we are going to be storing some of this carbohydrate in places other than, you know, just straight straight to glycogen stores, it is going to be a, a kind of energetically wasteful process. It does give you a little bit of a buffer when you're trying to determine the correct amount of calories to overfeed., uh, you know, going a little bit over with your fat because it can be so easily diverted to to fat stores. You get a little bit of wiggle room in the initial stages of kind of feeling out like, it's a little bit less punitive if you are starting a really high calorie bulk. You go a little bit over with your with a high carb approach. There's a little more wiggle room in there, so you can say, "Oh, okay, I'm a little bit too high. I can, you know, drop that down a little bit." Uh, but generally speaking, for for practical applications, it just really doesn't matter that much. Uh, if you are about to do a bulk, um, whether it's a, a, a very moderate bulk or a very aggressive bulk, uh, when it comes to macro breakdown and just like your general approach without question, you need to make sure that you're training in a way that's going to effectively stimulate hypertrophy. That's, that's the whole point. Like that's the most important thing you can do beyond that. You want to make sure you have enough protein to, to support maximal muscle growth. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, beyond that, I would suggest that you probably want to get at least three grams per kilogram of carbohydrate on a daily basis. Um, in most cases, that's probably where I would start as kind of the, the beginning for a carbohydrate target, you can go well above that if you wish. Um, but yeah, the, the idea that, um, that you're going to kind of game the system with doing these really, uh, really skewed macro profiles during bulking. Um, I just don't think it really pans out that way.
1: Yeah. So one, one thing I'll note just in the interest of, of full fairness is there is, there is one particular study that someone might cite to, uh, to make the case that a really low-fat, really high-carb diet is a bit of a hack, and uh, what I'll note about this study, uh, two things: one, I can't find it anymore. So it was, <laughs> it was, I believe, a conference abstract. The lead author was Mendez Neto from 2011. Uh, I first heard about this study from the website Subversity, uh, and, and we can we can put a link to this in the show notes. The, the link to the abstract in the Subversity site now directs to a, a page that doesn't include the abstract. Um, so yeah, I, I can't even find the, the original version of it anymore. I don't think the abstract was ever published as like an actual peer-reviewed study. Um, and also just like the details of it are uh are sketchy not sketch i i don't mean sketchy in terms of like i think the researchers did bad work but sketchy in terms of like i don't think these results would necessarily generalize uh so in in this particular study they basically had people go on a 1000 calorie surplus per day with either a high carb low fat diet or a even higher carb even lower fat diet and it was a 28 day crossover study so Ultimately, they were only looking at at changes in body composition over a one month period, so not not a long enough period of time for the subjects of the study who who were allegedly trained. I think they had like two years of training experience, so not enough time for people to actually like build quite a bit of muscle. Um, and so, like the the study purported to find that in the uh, high carb, low fat, but not super high carb super low fat group so like in just kind of the normal high carb group uh, over that 28 days people actually lost muscle mass and gained a lot of fat mass and then for the for the high carb or the super high carb super low fat group uh, they gained less body fat during the 28 days but also gained a tremendous amount of muscle mass and i don't even remember what sort of analytical methods they used in this study but i strongly suspect that uh they were mostly just picking up on shifts in water weight and and glycogen storage. Yeah. Um yeah, I mean ultimately, you know, we don't want to take too much away from a single study ever. We certainly don't want to take too much away uh when when talking about longitudinal changes in body composition from a 28-day study. Um and also we don't want to take away too much from a study that has results that at least like on their face conflict with reality like you know if you go from 50 grams of fat per day to 80 grams of fat per day that is not going to wipe out all of your hypertrophy like that that's not going to make you go from gaining 1.4 kilos of muscle to losing 0.1 kilo of muscle like if if you think that more power to you but I think you're going to have a hard time finding other evidence to make a strong case for that. But yeah. those those were the results of this particular abstract. And, you know, uh, in, in the grand scheme of things, not all studies are created equal. And uh, a conference abstract that I can't even find anymore, that never got published, uh, probably shouldn't be weighted heavier than all of the rest of the research on this topic. Yeah. <laughs> um so yeah, you can you can check out the subversity article about about that abstract if you're interested, um, and and we can put it there just in the interest of uh, making sure you can see the counter evidence to the the case we're making here. Um, but I, I don't think you can build a particularly strong case just on that one study.
0: Yeah, and you know to be fair, uh, if that's something that interests you and and you want to make that your kind of default approach to. Um, to bulking, I mean, when when I'm trying to gain a bunch of muscle, um, yeah, I, I usually uh, tend to really lean heavily on on carbohydrate and protein. But you know, the the only thing that you want to make sure you avoid is going too extreme with your fat restriction. You want to make sure that you're at least getting the essential fatty acids that you need to just be a healthy human being. Beyond that, if you want to experiment with it, um, by all means, you know, go ahead. But um, but yeah, there, there's not really strong evidence to suggest that. Um, that, that, uh, this super high carb bulking is some kind of a cheat code or that there's this just inexplicable impact on inexplicable and reliably observed impact on hypertrophy or fat accretion. Uh, generally speaking, when calories are ingested, we can figure out where they go. Uh, and it's usually not, uh, there's usually not free calories involved. Yeah. And I mean, if you're a researcher and you're
1: listening to this and like, to be clear, no one has replicated the the Mendez Neto results, but I don't think anyone has tried to replicate those results. So you know, if if this is interesting to you and you're like, hey, I want to do an over an overfeeding study at some point, and you decide like, ah, oh, yeah, let's let's do a high carb overfeeding study. I would be very interested in that. I I would like to read it. I'd like to see more like direct longitudinal evidence on this topic instead of you know like the the tightly controlled stuff short-term just looking at the specific fates of of stuff you're taking in that's all well and good but like who knows how things shift over time like i i suspect that if shifts occur it would be you know since de novo lipogenesis is happening maybe just like an upregulation of enzymes that help with that process so if anything if there are advantages to high carb overfeeding i would expect them to attenuate over time uh, rather than strengthen over time but you know, I could be wrong. So if, if you want to do longitudinal research on this topic, I would love to read it.
0: I, yeah, I think it'd be really cool. I mean, I I was aware of that abstract, uh, obviously couldn't find it, but, um, when I first heard of it, I I thought it was really intriguing. And as someone who by default would usually do high carb bulking, it's certainly, um, you know, I love some good confirmation bias as much as the next guy. Mm-hmm. But uh, but yeah, in terms of making generalizable uh, statements about how one ought to approach bulking, there's really just no evidence, no no strong evidence to indicate that you uh, necessarily need to favor one particular macronutrient over the other. I think it really just comes to a reasonably balanced profile of macronutrients and just kind of honing in on what the correct magnitude of surplus is going to be. Plus, like I said, most importantly, just having a great training program. Mm-hmm. All right. You want to do a, a quick uh, research review?
1: Yeah, yeah, let's do it. So uh, if you've been listening to this show for a while, you know that one of, one of our little, one of our little bug-a-bears is uh, the idea of science by press release. And I regret to inform you there is another example of it going around So I was on Twitter the other day, and I saw in my trending topics tab, uh, there, there was an article that, that got put out by, uh, ah, dang, what was, what was this website? I have the, the archive.is link pulled up. Um, ah, dang it, whatever. So you can find the article. The title is, From Runner's Face to Dodgy Knees, Why Running Helps Keep Women Young But Ages Men, uh. As I mentioned, I have, uh, oh, so here's here's a fun fact for anyone listening. I don't think this is illegal. Maybe it is. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not a lawyer. But if you're interested in reading an article on some news site that is paywalled, like you go to New York Times and it says, ah, you've, you've read your five free articles for the month already, you gotta subscribe. You don't have to. Uh, so there's this site called archive.ph You can go there, uh, just copy and paste the URL from whatever article you wanted to read. There's a little box that says, uh, I want to see if there are archived versions of this page. You put the URL in, you click search. If it's a relatively popular article, there are generally like archived snapshots of it. You can click on those and and bypass the paywall. So anyway, uh, that's what I'm doing to read this. I think the site was inews.co.uk. But anyway, so... I saw in my trending topics tab that the the specific phrase running ages men had been uh, tweeted about I think it was like 26,000 times in the prior four hours or something so this this is a a topic that uh, you know at least a few days ago was was really uh, taking Twitter by storm you may have come across this Um, but the the takeaway that a lot of people had from this article is that running is good for women but bad for men like it it helps uh preserve youth and longevity in women but it uh it, it ages men on a biological level if you run it's gonna be bad for you you're gonna die early a lot of bad stuff uh like that that was the takeaway and I can understand why that would be from the title of the article: Why running keeps women young but ages men. Um, but as I mentioned, this is this is a situation of of science by press release and just kind of a game of telephone. So uh, when you when you pull up this article, uh, unfortunately, it doesn't link to anything. Um, like it's it's unclear what is actually being reported on. Uh, but but I did some searching based on some of the, the experts cited in this article, and I found the press release that it was based on. So uh, the press release, this will also be linked in the show notes, the title is Endurance Exercise May Affect Body's Largest Artery Differently in Men and Women. Uh, so the press release itself reads... Uh, The research, funded by the British Heart Foundation and Cardiac Risk in the Young, and presented at the British Cardiovascular Society Conference in Manchester, showed that older male athletes had a stiffer aorta. It found that the vascular age of male athletes' aorta was almost 10 years older than their chronological age, whereas female athletes showed no overall age difference. However, experts say the finding should not deter people from exercising, as further research is needed to understand the biological reasons underpinning these differences, They've also urged that regular moderate intensity exercise is beneficial for good health. So, like, it, it basically goes on from there. It's, it's a pretty balanced press release. It, it says, like, hey, we found this thing. It was presented at a conference. Uh, you know, ultimately, don't, don't go out of your way if you're a man to stop running uh, because, um, you know, overall, still seems like running is good for you. But that was the press release. And so then uh, people saw it they kind of took it and, and ran with it. Uh, so the the particular article on inews.co.uk uh, briefly discussed that press release. Uh, and then most of the article was actually pitched at women telling them like, hey, actually, it's fine to run. Uh, so it, it's kind of framed as a myth busting article. Uh, I don't know what myths it's busting necessarily, but I also don't consume a lot of uh, endurance training content directed at women. So maybe these are uh, uh common beliefs people have. So for example, they they try to dispel the myth of runner's face. Apparently, people are concerned that if you run, it makes the skin on your face droopy, and uh, and that's not good. And uh, this article says, like, ah, no, like you don't have to worry about that. It's not going to make your face droopy. So that's you know that's kind of the the track that this article took, but uh, you know, people seem to pay most attention to the headlines. And so I'm not going to say the journalist's name. She probably didn't write the headline. It was probably an editor. Um, but you know, so there's, there's basically this game of telephone where you have, uh, a conference abstract not published yet. We can't actually read it to see, you know, is there anything methodologically worth talking about? So it's, it's kind of a black box, but there's a press release about this black box, um, uh, uh, conference abstract that's been published and then that results in an article that uh, overall the article itself isn't bad but then that article has a headline that says running ages men and then that gets filtered onto to social media where you have literally tens of thousands of people saying oh hey here's evidence that running is bad for you if you're a man and so it it at each step in that process thing things just degenerate and get worse and worse and worse and i think that i think that this is a really deleterious thing for science literacy because i think i think before you get to the point where you can put a headline on an article that says running ages men," you should be you should be forced to do a little bit of background research to to you know quantify in what way is it aging men and uh you know if if the finding itself is good and durable which you as the journalist can't know because the study isn't published yet you you should at least have to like temper it a little bit so you know even if we take all of this at face value like the the study found what it purported to find uh, a de- uh lower aortic or i guess higher aortic stiffness in male runners than people of a similar age. Uh, and, and you're saying that that uh, means running ages men. So, you know, if, if that's the route you want to go and that's like an argument you want to make uh, and, and just something you want to put out into the world to the point that you're actually going to include a reference to that in the art in the title of this article, it might be worth asking yourself, like, well, okay. Uh, if running vascularly ages men, what sorts of things might you expect to happen? You know, maybe increased cardiovascular mortality in runners, maybe higher stroke risk in runners because that's uh, largely a vascular condition as well. Uh, maybe elevated blood pressure, like if you're if you're getting increased arterial stiffness, blood pressure should go up. So then you can you can look at the research on those topics, uh, and this will be linked in the show notes, but uh, 2020 meta-analysis. Is running associated with lower all-cause cardiovascular and cancer mortality, and is the more the better? A systematic review and meta-analysis by Pedizic and colleagues. Uh, and so just looking at cardiovascular mortality, no, running is associated with a 30% reduction in cardiovascular mortality. Okay, well, let's talk about a more specifically vascular condition, stroke. Uh, reduction in incident in incident stroke risk with vigorous physical activity, colon evidence from 7.7-year follow-up of the National Runner's Health Study by Williams. Uh, this was from 2009. Um, and so the, the result per kilometer per day of running, the age and smoking adjusted risk for stroke decreased 12% in men, and 11% in men and women combined, uh, and that held even when adjusting for baseline diabetes, hypercholesterolemia, hypertension, and BMI. So once again, more evidence that if you're, if you're proposing that uh, running vascularly ages men, maybe you should anticipate an increase in stroke risk. You see the opposite. Uh, and then let's talk about blood pressure specifically, because again, if you're talking about vascular stiffness, you should see an increase in blood pressure, Uh, and uh, so uh, another study running to lower resting blood pressure colon a systematic review and meta-analysis from 2020 by Igarashi and Nogami this will also be linked in the show notes and yeah in healthy people in people who are at high risk of hypertension and in people who already have hypertension uh, running seems to lower both uh, systolic and diastolic blood pressure so you know in a situation like this, before <laughs> before you can write an article that says running ages men, especially if the specific thing the press release is talking about is changes in aortic stiffness, you should have to step back and say, well, okay, if this is a durable, generalizable finding, what should we expect to see? Elevations in blood pressure, maybe increased stroke risk, maybe increased cardiovascular mortality, just bad things happening to men that run. And in fact, we see all of, all of the opposite things happening. Lower stroke risk, lower cardiovascular mortality rate, uh, lower blood pressure. So, you know, ultimately, like, I think it's, I mean, I think it's totally fine to do the study. I think it's totally fine to put out a press release to say, hey, we did this study. But I, th- I just think that journalists and journalistic outlets need to have more restraint before writing about a study they can't even read yet um and specifically editors putting a headline on it that says running ages men when you're talking about vascular changes where like all of the long-term evidence suggests that the opposite occurs that if you know yeah I, i i just find this intensely frustrating uh and you know like i said this was all this was on twitter trending topics there were like 26000 tweets about this shit uh and it could have been prevented with with just a requirement for like a little background research or even a less inflammatory title because uh here's a news flash for you guys no one reads fucking articles like i said the article itself was generally fine like it was it was a puff piece largely meant to dispel fears of running in women, which totally cool with like running, running is good for you. Uh, I I support it wholeheartedly, but at some point in the process, like it was like there had to be a, a fear mongering hook in the title to drive page views. And like, that's, that's bad. Like that's, that's how bad ideas get seeded in people's minds. And I know that uh, over the next couple of months, I'm gonna, I'm gonna run into people making the claim that like, oh man, running is bad for men's vascular health. And it's not going to be based on people reading the study that all of this was based on because that study isn't published yet. It's going to be based on people reading a fear-mongery headline that should never have been written. And uh, yeah, I, I find the whole thing uh, very frustrating and quite frankly, irresponsible.
0: Yeah, and as our Stronger by Science running ambassador, I also find it to be very frustrating. Um, Anyway, to play us out, I'm going to continue the trend of giving music recommendations. Now, up to this point, my music recommendations have not been particularly friendly to training. It's not really been the type of music that most people would listen to while working out. You don't do a lot of alternative country or, uh, you know, blues specifically from Northern Mississippi when you're training. But, um, I, I do enjoy some bands that play some of the heavier stuff that might be more, uh, conventionally compatible with resistance training. Uh, you know, you go into a lifting gym and you kind of know what to expect in a lot of cases in terms of what's going to be playing on the speakers if they still do that. Um, but, but I still enjoy music that has, uh, A bit of complexity to it. Music that's been put together uh, very thoughtfully, in my opinion. Uh, Music that showcases uh, a lot of excellent skill and musicianship. And so a couple bands that I like that I think, you know, potentially some listeners might enjoy training to. Number one is Tool. Uh, I've really been on a big kick listening to a lot of Tool lately. Uh, They even have a song called The Pot, which I haven't looked into the lyrics too much. (laughs) But I assume it's probably a cautionary tale about gateway drugs, if I had to guess. So very compatible with the show's values. And then Mastodon, uh, really, really solid band. Uh, again, it's it's kind of like heavier stuff. I don't claim to be like uh, really deep into the culture of like harder rock or, or even into like metal or you know progressive rock or progressive metal. That's that's not the in-group that would embrace me as one of their own, most likely, uh, and I don't claim it. Um, but these are some bands that, uh, yeah, like I said, it's, it's a little bit on the heavier side in terms of rock, a little bit more conventionally uh, compatible with the type of things people like to lift to, um, but still very, very well done. Uh, a lot of excellent musicianship and just really, really enjoyable songs. So Tool and Mastodon, if you're not familiar with them, check them out. Damn, that's just such a big change of pace
1: from, from all of your other uh, music recommendations. Do you I've, ever listen to either of them? I could have pegged you as a... Yeah, I've listened to plenty of both. I could have pegged you as a Tool fan. I would not have pegged you as a Mastodon fan.
0: I like them. And apparently, I'm not the only one who's... I mean, obviously, there there's overlap there. But I was I was doing uh, some reading on the internet the other day. Apparently, they toured together uh, like way back in the day. Uh, I think they did a a tour in Europe together, uh, which would have been a hell of a show to see. Very nice. So uh,
1: my, I think, I think my second concert going experience. So my first was, um, was Van Halen's uh, um, reunion tour. So it it was, it was the first, it was the first tour where they had David Lee Roth back in the band since like the early 90s. Uh, so it was the original lineup, but with Wolfgang on bass instead of uh, Michael Anthony. And dude, it rocked! Like yeah. I I never understood why Van Halen was classified as heavy metal, but when you listen to them in an arena live, like you get it. Like it's yeah. it's, it's it's pretty heavy music. Uh, also, stand out of that show, you'll appreciate this as a percussionist. Alex Van Halen had like a six minute long drum solo. Which was face melting. It was yeah. absolutely incredible. Uh, the second show I ever went to, uh, and I hope well. Whatever, I'm I'm out of the house now. Uh, my my parents don't know this. I I lied and told them I was going to do something else. Uh, but it was called the Unholy Trinity tour. It was Lamb of God, Mastodon, and Behemoth. Oh wow! And uh, oh brother, that was. I think it was like 2006. So I was like 14, 15 <laughs> and uh man, that was that was an experience. I bet. Um but yeah, it was it was awesome. I would I would love to go to another metal show. Um like for so for for people who don't listen to metal, I think uh like I I don't like listening to it most of the time. Like I have to be in a very particular mood to listen to metal but when when i do it's generally like when the ba- when the vibes are very bad and i need catharsis and you just put on your headphones or you know if no one else is in the house you just crank the music up really loud on your speakers just just blast it for like yeah 20 30 minutes just really get the anger out and then like you just you just, like people who don't like metal i don't think get this they think like this is very loud and aggressive it makes people loud and aggressive but no like when you already feel that way it really helps you chill out. And I can tell you uh walking out of the Unholy Trinity tour, I have never been in a more zen-like state in my life. That got that got every last ounce of like adolescent angst and aggression out of my system. At least for like a solid day or two. Wow.
0: I you know I have a a very 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 brief story that is the complete opposite of that. Oh no. Um, <laughs> so this I don't I don't know if it would be considered metal. Um so I went to Lollapalooza, the music festival one year where uh Rage Against the Machine was headlining. Nice. Um I think they were doing like a retu- a reunion kind of string of shows. Mhm. And uh, I I believe they finished their set, uh, their headliner, so it was the last the last sounds of the night basically. I'm pretty sure they finished it off with Bulls on Parade. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. And then the entire crowd just kind of spilled into the streets of Chicago. And <laughs> I, I don't know what kind of havoc ensued from there, but there was a large group of highly energized, uh, highly energized folks with just kind of the seeds of a revolution planted in their head. Uh, yeah, it was pretty, pretty wild, but very much the opposite of that. But
1: yeah, I, I think I think I think rage is different.
0: It's yeah, it's yeah. very different. Because, like, it, it's written to inspire, like, that that revolutionary, rebellious spirit and be like, all right, now go do something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. very, very different. Um, but anyway, yeah, so uh, some of the harder stuff for folks who need something to train to. Uh, all right, so that does it for this episode. As always, thank you for listening, and we will be back next week with another episode. Thank you for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to sign up for our free newsletter to get concise breakdowns of relevant research, as well as 28 free training programs for all skill levels and all schedules. We hate spam just as much as you do, so we'll only email you when we have something really interesting to share with you. You can sign up for the free newsletter at strongerbyscience.com newsletter, or just go to the Stronger by Science homepage and click the free programs button at the top. If you want to join in on the Stronger by Science podcast conversation, be sure to check out our Facebook group and our subreddit. The links for both are provided in the description of today's episode. Finally, please remember that we are not medical doctors or registered dietitians. So before you make any changes to your exercise or nutrition habits, be sure to check with a qualified healthcare professional. Once again, thank you for listening. And we will be back soon with another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast.